Good morning, Three Rivers. It's good to be back home. Good to be with you. It's weird when we are not here. So it's good to be not weird. Bibles, if you have them, Genesis chapter 20. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really try hard as we, as we work through our passage today, Genesis 20, to just make our observations on the front end that I want to come on the backside and do all the application at one time, okay? So, so if, if you're feeling a little, uh, too dry or just observing only, that's because I'm gonna do all the observation on the front end. Uh, what does the text say? What does it mean? And then we're gonna come back and do the, uh, get our hands in the dirt and make application on the backside of things this morning, okay? Good with that? Awesome, very good. Genesis chapter 20. If I were going to put a covering over this this morning, I would say God's mercy to Abraham and to Abimelech. God's mercy to Abraham and God's mercy to Abimelech. And he works that out in a thousand good things. And I'm not going to share a thousand of them with you this morning. But a few of those good things when God is at work establishing his kingdom through Abraham and through even Abimelech. Currently, we we live... We live in a Genesis 3 world on a Genesis 1 blueprint with an eye to Revelation 21 and the full establishment of the kingdom. We as the people of God are to be living in the framework God has established that His kingdom be in, but in a very broken world with very broken people. And I'm chief among you as broken. But we do so with an eye to the establishment of the kingdom. And that provides for us this glorious healing framework where we are a people who know we live in a broken world and a framework that God has established and is redeeming knowing that He will make it right. And and if there's anything I have tried to do in, in 16, almost 16 years with you is sell you on the Bible's view of God and that He is not reactive. He isn't making things up as He goes along, but He's the sovereign good Father who even in hard things has allowed or put His hand in them for good and His glory. And I'm telling you as a person who came from an awful childhood and from a terrible background and is super broken and in, and in process of, of seeing the right people for him to work that out in me for good healing. The thing that keeps me sane is these Genesis 20 passages that show me God is working even in the unbeliever. Because we see in this passage too that that in this Genesis 3 world, on this Genesis 1 blueprint, God hasn't left Abraham up to himself. And he hasn't put Abraham merely in the hands of other kings. But he is the king and he's ruling all things for his glory and our good. And he will not sacrifice either. Both of them go together. And I will tell you that's the thing in my Bible that has held me together. Those Genesis 50, 20 passages. What you meant for evil, God meant it for good. And if that doesn't create sanity in our, in our, in our hearts, nothing will. 
Nothing will. And, and Genesis 50, 20 can sit superimposed on top of Genesis 20 here that God's mercy is to Abraham and to and through Abimelech. And so I say to you sitting here this morning, God hasn't left you to yourself and your own devices or the devices of others. That he is busy at work in this Genesis 3 world, working on his blueprint that is right to fully establish it in the Revelation 21 kingdom to come. So in our Genesis chapter 20, what do we see? And then how are we going to make application to it? So let's look at our observations. we got a few of those. Uh, number one, in Genesis chapter 20, verse 1 to 2, and then 12 to 13, we see that Abraham is still... This far into the process, he's still learning to trust God. He hadn't arrived yet. He's still learning. Verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife. Now this should sound familiar because we've seen this before. She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Verse 12 and 13. And this is his justification for so doing. Besides, she is indeed my sister, weird. The daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Right on the eve of God fulfilling his promise to give him a son. I mean, we're right on the, it's the next chapter. Right on the eve of God fulfilling his word. Abraham comes along and he reaches back to his sin. And he reaches back to his past and he starts operating out of his past. Right on the cusp of Isaac's birth, sin jeopardizes the fulfillment of God's promise. And Abraham's willing to trade the promise for a false sense of safety. He repeats the sin of chapter 12. He did this already. He did this in Egypt. And he reaches back to his past allegiances rather than leaning into and trusting God to do what God can only do under his rule and his authority. Reaching back to past allegiances and other systems and other kingdoms never works. As a matter of fact, we're going to see, and I'll I'll draw some points uh, to this in application. Isaac, in chapter 26, is going to repeat his father's sin. He's going to do the same thing and to the same king. Observation number two, verse three to seven. God intervenes. Now, on behalf of Abraham, and he intervenes on behalf of Abimelech too. God isn't throwing the sinner away. Listen to what we read in verse 3 through 7. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken. For she is a man's wife. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? It's fascinating that God is having a conversation with an unbeliever. This is gonna, we're gonna talk about this in application. I said I'm gonna really try to hold off. So we're gonna get there in a minute. But God is speaking to an unbelieving king and preserving him. Okay? So hang tight. Lord, will you indeed kill an innocent people? 
Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Wow. Do you mean God even preserves sinners from sin? Yeah. There's evangelistic implications here, so hang tight. Boy, it's hard not to just... We'll launch. We'll get there in a second. Thank you, Miss Georgia. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Wow. So is God sovereign over unbelieving kings? Yes. Yes. This is just one example. This is one. Bukus in your, in your Bible. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. First time this word is used here. Speaking of Abraham, he's a prophet, one who speaks on behalf of God, for he's a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So God intervenes on behalf of Abraham and Abimelech. God preserves Abraham in spite of his faithlessness. In spite of his faithlessness, God being good preserves Abraham by speaking to Abimelech. And he also preserves the integrity of their marriage. I mean, God made a promise. I'm going to give you a son through Sarah. I mean, your son. I'm going to keep my word so God preserves the holiness of their union. And the, frankly, the holiness of marriage in general. And that could be a whole sermon by itself. So I'm going to pass that off for later. But we're working on the Genesis 1 blueprint in a broken Genesis 3 world with an eye to Revelation 21. So in this broken world that has messed up marriage, and he's taking a harem to himself, this king, this unbelieving king, God is gracious to Abraham in preserving the integrity of his marriage and marriage in general. He's showing us what the blueprint should look like. Reminding us, because we're a few chapters past Genesis 1 and 2, where it's all working together good, and the shalom has been broken. And God is merciful to Abimelech also because he was truly innocent in regard to what Abraham told him. He didn't know. God was showing kindness to Abraham, but he was also showing kindness to this unbelieving king. And in so doing, God is putting on display his grace and his kindness for the world to see. He's teaching something about himself. You see this in Ezekiel 33.11 where God tells Ezekiel to tell the people, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. God doesn't desire the death of the wicked. God desires that we would preach the gospel and that we would get engaged in what's necessary to be engaged to fix and heal the curse and preach the good news and rescue people from darkness. But God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. So God's being gracious to Abraham and to this unbelieving king. Because that's God's heartbeat. Just one little application, please. That, that should tenderize your heart to the lostness of Roman Floyd County. Not they smell bad, they look bad, they're different, they have a different culture, they are poor, they are dirty, it should be they're broken. 
And God doesn't delight in the poverty. He doesn't delight in the dirtiness and the difficulty and the abuse and all the nasty things. And He doesn't want them to die. He could be giving them dreams and visions. And where are we? I find it fascinating here that that God in His good sovereignty allowed Abraham to be a fool. To bear witness to His grace and mercy. And God can use your foolishness to bear witness to His grace and mercy to your town. But do we? Do we? Do we? Verse 14 to 16, we also see here that God uses Abraham's sin to bring provision in spite of his sin. This is how good God is. God uses Abraham's sin to bring provision in spite of his sin. Notice what we read here. Verse 14 to 16. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. And to Sarah he said, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. In spite of his sin, God uses his sin to bless them with land and the provision of silver to prove he didn't touch his wife. This was a sign to the people that she is pure and that I have done no wrong. She goes back to you. Here's land. Live in it. Do what you need to do. And here's all this provision for you and his and your people. This is the goodness of God put on display that in spite of his sin, he would bless him. There's an Old Testament professor at uh, Westminster Theological Seminary. I can't pronounce his last name. I mean, I can pronounce it. I can sound it out. I can phonetically sound it out, but I think it's wrong. So I'm just going to say his first name, Ian. D-U-G-U-I-D. Maybe you can tell me how to pronounce that later. I'm fairly educated, but sometimes even phonetics is, is wrong, you know. So, Ian, whatever. In his little book called Living in the Gap Between Promise and Reality. And I would suggest you put your hands on that book and read that. He makes this statement. This is beautiful. God's ability... To use even our sins for his own purposes shows that he doesn't love us simply for the great things we can do for him. Mm. God's love for his people is not dependent on my performance or yours. His love for you and I is purely moved by the cross. And His sacrifice for us in our place for our sin. That His standard would be satisfied. So God doesn't love me for what I can do for Him. And He doesn't love you for what you can do for Him. His love for His people is purely based on His grace and mercy to pay for our sin. And adopt us as sons and daughters and treat us as family members. God preserves this situation and shows that He alone can and does keep the covenant. Here's the truth here. He wants Abraham to understand, back to Genesis 15, I alone passed through the sacrifices and made the covenant. I alone keep it. I don't need you to provide goodness for me, Abraham. It's clear you're not good. I'm good and I love you and I will save you come what may. So God uses even His sin to bring provision. And listen... 
God is not in the business of getting even. God got even with you on the cross. <laughs> right? So we have this tendency to fall back into Catholic theology. That God's love for me is predicated on what I do in the sacraments. Or what I don't do. And that God's waiting around the corner to hit me with taking something away violently and forcefully because I've sinned. That's not how the cross works. And He didn't work it here in Abraham's life like that. You've sinned, but I'm going to bless you with provision because I'm good and I don't need you to be good for me, Abraham. I love you because of me. And this morning, just application, if you'll pardon me, if you're in Christ... Your performance doesn't earn you God's favor. Jesus earned you all the good that God will ever give you. And He earned all the good God will take from your bad and turn it to good for you. So what do you do? As Adam said, thank you Adam for doing that. You respond in worship. And if this connection between here and here is broke, ask the Holy Spirit to fix it. And I don't care what it looks like. But there is this connection between the truth that God does love me in spite of me and the outflow of worship that comes out of me Monday through Saturday and Sunday when you walk in this room. A cold separatedness from the truth of God being expressed in white hot worship is a sign of brokenness, not of some bent God gave you. Does that make sense? Somewhere the truth has to connect with the outward expression. And I don't know what that looks like. I don't think it has to look uniform across the room. But somewhere there has to be delight in the heart that says I've earned nothing and God's given me everything. That's what he did for Abraham. God deals with his people in the glorious way of a father to his children. Sometimes God disciplines in response to our sins. He spanks us. But Hebrews 11 tells us that's what good fathers do. It's not abuse. We have a tendency to think of God's discipline as abuse. It's not abuse. It's fatherliness. Jolly, I'm going to have to cause a little pain right now because you need to learn to not do that again. But sometimes He gifts us in response to our sins to remind us you don't earn it. Don't forget that. That's what a good father does. By the way, this is another application. Third one before I get there, but you'll indulge me. right? That's good parenting advice. Sometimes you need to lovingly drop the hammer and sometimes you let it slide. Because it shows our children that that's how God treats us. All of this to display His grace and His justice. So we worship Him as right, but we also worship Him as gracious. That's full-bodied worship. Not just worshiping for the loving things, but we worship Him for His justice as well. Last observation we see here in verse 17 and 18. Abraham's sin brought terrible effects to others. Yet God used it to bring blessing to Abimelech's household. Verse 17 and 18. Then Abraham prayed to God. He's the prophet. He represents the Lord. And God healed Abimelech. And he also healed his wife and his female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord, listen to this, for the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. You've heard me say this a hundred times and it bears repeating. Sin is atmospheric. It never just affects the sinner. It affects everybody. The lie is sin is isolated to me. Sin is isolated to this. 
between you and me. No, sin is never isolated. Sin is a cancer that metastasizes through the body and through the world. And it will absolutely, utterly destroy everything. In this instance, because Abraham lied and he didn't trust the Lord, God closed the ability of Abimelech's household to have children. And, and Abimelech didn't do anything wrong. And that's the ugliness of sin. Sin affects people who are innocent. Never, ever isolated to the sinner. Here we see, though, that Abraham's called a prophet. In verse 7, a prophet speaks on behalf of God. And here we get a gospel picture. And we get two pictures. Uh, Brian Chapel, he's a Presbyterian. Uh, okay. Infant baptizer. Give him a break. He got a lot of things right. Sorry. I'm a real Baptist. Real Reformed Baptist. I'm sorry. But Chapel's solid. Even though he's a Presbyterian. And he talks about in his teaching of the Old Testament that the Old Testament provides us with two types of pictures of the gospel. Dead ends and bridges. A dead end is a negative example, the opposite of what the gospel does. A bridge is, is, is a helper to get us to understand what God has done. Here we've got both. We've got a dead end and a bridge. Let's start with the bridge. Abraham here in this instance is a bridge. He's called a prophet. And in this prophetic ministry God has given to Abraham, he is life and he brings life. Through his prophetic ministry and praying for Abimelech. And in praying for him, he heals and he fixes and he puts on display the ability of God to fix what's broken. Pointing us to the one who would come the prophet, the priest, the king. Jesus, the one who speaks the word of God rightly all the time, not just some of the time. And we see in Abraham's prophetic response this pointing to Jesus who would come and he would heal. And he would not only heal wounds and hearts and limbs and minds, but he would heal the broken soul that's separated from God. And Abraham's prayer to heal this household points us to Jesus and his sacrifice and his eternal priesthood that heals sin and brings the order of God's kingdom into the world to fix chaos And pointing to this hope in our heart that one day it would fully be fixed as well. We also see a dead end. We see in the prophet a dead end by showing us what Jesus won't be like. Sometimes the best examples of the gospel in the Old Testament are negative. In that we look at that and we say, never like a father. Never like a husband. Never going to be like God. The kings kings of Judah and Israel are loaded with dead ends. One instance, they're doing good. And you think, wow, they love the Lord. And the next thing you know, they're selling their children and their futures for a little bit of peace now. And you're left going, will you be like that, Lord? And then the Lord Jesus comes and says, no. I won't sell you out for bread. I'll go to the cross for you. And we see here a dead end in that, as a prophet, this is what Jesus won't be like. Jesus won't sell me out for his safety and security. In fact, he will go to the cross and take my penalty in my place for my sin. And set me free. He won't be like Abraham. So, how do we apply today? How do we apply? Number one. Ingrained habits of sin will trouble us. And they will show up when we are growing up into Jesus. 
ingrained patterns and habits of sin will trouble us and there will be showing up of these things as we're growing up into Jesus. The Lord often grows us through pressing us and squeezing out old and dead things so that He can replace them with new and living things. Sometimes God's methodology of growing us up into Christ is to squeeze us and to put the pinch on us. Because you ever, you've heard the saying, what comes out when you're squeezed is who you are. Right? Good and bad. And the Lord knows this. He made us this way. And sometimes when He puts us into these situations where we have to trust Him, He squeezes us and He squeezes out the old and the dead so He can replace it with life and new. But it's in these moments where those ingrained habits of sin will trouble us and show up. And this is why we have to go back and trust the Lord to be good in spite of me. Because listen, He will squeeze it out. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. He will finish what He started in you. And so we need Jesus and His sacrifice to pay the penalty for my sin. So when He squeezes me and dead stuff comes out, I don't have to pay for it. He paid for it for me. But He will squeeze out the dead. And when He squeezes... Sometimes those old ingrained habits of sin come out. Proverbs 17.3 says, The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. So know this, dear Christian, that He will put you in the crucible. Because He intends to squeeze out the old and the dead so He can replace it with new and life. But recognize that what's often going to come out, and, and this is key here. This is key. It's going to be those ingrained habits of sin. And I don't have to tell you what they are. You already know them. You're thinking about them now. You know what you go back to. For Abraham, it was lying about who his wife is. For you, for me, I know what mine is. don't know what yours is. But you know what it is. And as the Lord puts you into the crucible of life, those ingrained patterns are going to come to the forefront. But note this, he intends to rub them out and squeeze them out and replace them with good things. It may be painful in the process. But here's a little negative component to this application. Not killing our sin. And by the way, one of the things he does by squeezing us is putting our sin out in public. If you do life together, people are going to see your sin. And it's one of the reasons it's easy to run to isolation so nobody sees what I really am. And you can keep up the airs. But the reality is if you do life with people, they will know what you are. It just is what it is. And God's good to let other people see so that they can help us get rid of those things. But here it is, not killing our sin. And when he, when he exposes them, it not, and this will be point number two application in just a second. So I'm, I mean, I wrote therefore because it's like connected. They're different, but they're connected. So I said therefore, so you'll see the connections. If you're looking at the notes, you're like, hey, I see that. I see what he's doing. So... When he lays them bare, he's doing his part to lay them bare and squeeze them out so that we can then put the sword in them. Not killing our sin ensures then that we're going to pass them on to our kids or even other people we influence. As I mentioned already, Isaac's going to do what his father did in chapter 26. She's my sister. Where did that come from? And remember, chapter 20, Isaac's not born yet. Where did he get that from? Ingrained sinful patterns set. Listen, Exodus 20 speaks about this. 
that we can pass on the influence of our sin to the third and the fourth generation. This terrifies me. Because my three teenagers already do the things that I do overtly and covertly. And it's like, oh God. Oh God. Oh Lord. They're little walking jollies. Oh boy. Salty language. Yes. Oh Jesus, you can't say that in public. Oh God. Right? And other things. Other things. And here's the reality. Because He's gracious to lay it bare and not judge us for it. Because He judged Jesus for my sin. This leads us to application number two. Killing sin is the primary co-labor of growth in Christ. Killing sin is the primary co-labor of growth in Christ. Now, I crafted that sentence on purpose. Killing sin, Jesus lays it out. He squeezes us. We revert back to ingrained sin patterns. He lays it bare. And then this Romans 8.13 passage tells us something important. That this is a primary co-laboring work of growing up into Christ. Listen to what Romans 8.13 says. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you... But if by the Spirit you... Co-laboring. By the Holy Spirit's means you doing it. Put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. See, Abraham's task here is our task. And that is when God puts us in situations to expose our sin, we don't cover them up, we put a sword in them and we kill them. By the work of the Holy Spirit, there's a whole book written on this, John Owen's Mortification of the Flesh, and there's a modernized version called Killing Sin. If you just Google it or Amazon it, it'll pop up. I suggest getting both, unless you can't read Old English, then get Killing Sin. I can't read Old English, sorry. I've read Mortification of the Flesh, I had no clue what he said, and, and so then I had to read the modern version called Killing Sin, right? Get it and read it. It's a whole book on, on Romans 8, 13, it's an entire book on just this one verse, Because the primary task of growing up into this God who loves us in spite of us is taking that sin and killing it. And Paul says here in Romans 8.13 that if we don't do that, we're going to die. But if we do it, we will live. And it's by the means of the work of the Spirit that we put these things to death and we grow up into Christ. So Abraham, here's an example of us of not killing his sin. And it showed up again and again and again and it showed up in the life of his children. That should serve as a warning for us, parents. Kill sin. Students, don't be satisfied with the sin of your parents lived out in you. Kill it. Kill it. Kill it. I'm not telling you it's easy. I'm telling you it's required. Number three. Trusting God... These are the applications. Trusting God to work out how He fulfills His Word is better than our own ways of securing God's promises. Trusting God to work out how He fulfills His Word is better than our own ways of securing God's promises. Abraham still goes back to chapter 12. 
God's promised to do these things, bless the nations through me, give me a child. Here's this king wants to take my wife. Do I lean into the Lord? Do I lean into his promises and trust him? Or do I rescue myself? I'll rescue myself. Right? Trusting God to work out how he fulfills his word is better than our own way of securing God's promises. Abraham believed getting to God's promises was all on him. And here's the deal. This is why the Psalms are full of wait on the Lord, 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 wait on the Lord. They didn't ask the Lord. They didn't seek the Lord. And when they don't seek the Lord and wait on the Lord, they get in trouble. But when they wait on the Lord and seek the Lord, guess what happens? The Lord does amazing things for them. And we read that and we get up from it and go do our own thing. Lord, what happened? Right? I mean, I'm, that's me to a T. Here's the deal. The problem with people like me is that I can make things happen. I was talking to a Christian before church started. I'm a, I'm a workaholic. I have a problem. I don't know how to stop. Like if I stop, I get antsy. And then people who don't work make me mad because they're lazy. I'm just telling you, I, I have a problem, a serious problem. I don't know how to stop. I don't know how to rest. I'm constantly thinking. My mind's always working. I don't know how to stop it. And it's just always, always there. And so because of that, I'm moved to action. I'm an action taker. I work. I do things. I start stuff. Always. Always, always. And because of that, that's a good thing. That's not bad. But because of that, I have a tendency to try to rescue myself. I have a tendency to take the reins as if I can, from the Lord and do His thing my way. And it's clear here for Abraham that doesn't work. And so to step back and believe that God fulfilling His word is better than mine is almost foolishness to me. But it's, it, it's the truth. And so maybe for you, your bent is to trust the Lord and I'm jealous of you. Maybe for you, your bent is to rescue yourself, and I understand. But I just want to say to you, here we go, it's better to trust the Lord. Amen. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, this is a good memory verse if you don't know it by heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. Because it's flawed. If I don't do it, how's it going to happen? That's flawed. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge Him and what? And make your pass. Right? Right? That's right there in the manual. So do things God's way. Do things His prescribed way. It's in the manual. It is there. If not explicitly stated in chapter and verse, the principle's there. And, and the, I can't like go into your mind right now and address yours specifically with the principle. You're going to have to be a student of the scriptures. And I promise you, he will not leave you. He will answer you. Wait on him. Read that thing. And, and listen, I'm convinced this is true. I had a wise old man tell me this one time. Never make a decision you don't have instruction in the scriptures for until you have instruction. And I fully believe this. And if that takes a year for you to read your Bible through the first time to get it figured out, then wait a year. There are ample examples in the Bible of people who didn't wait on the Lord and it cost them many years. Think Canaan, 40 
The Lord said, go, I'll deliver them into your hands. They're big. Let's not. Okay, 40 years later. Right? God's way is always better. I'd rather wait a year and get it right than go ahead now and miss it 40 years later. God's way is always better. Always better. Number four. I got nine seconds. And I'll be on the mark. I've only got a few more. I'll go quick. Believe that God keeping His promise has nothing to do with your performance. Believe that God keeping His promise has nothing to do with your performance. I'm just going to leave that there. Number five. God is at work in Abimelech in spite of appearances. God is at work in Abimelech in spite of appearances. We need to act like God is at work in spite of the appearances in the world around us. The kingdom of God is working supernaturally even when we don't see it. You see, the problem here was that Abraham made this statement in his justification, uh, verse 8 all the way down through verse 13. Listen to what Abraham said in verse 11. Abimelech's like, why, why, what did you do? Why have you done this to us? Why have you brought this on me and my kingdom and my household? And he's, verse 10, Abimelech even said, what did you see that you did this thing? Why did you look at my, my Abimelech's name, Melech, king, Ab. Ab is the root of the word Abba, father, father, king. I mean, he's an unbeliever, but apparently he's not a murderous dictator. And he's looking at Abraham, what did you see in me that made you do this? And listen to Abraham's response. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they'll kill me because of my wife. Abraham could not have been more wrong. Do not misunderstand. Abimelech is not a follower of the Lord Jesus. He is an unregenerate king. But the assumption that there was no concept or fear of God at all in this king's heart was false. Clearly false. And what Abraham didn't see was that God was working in spite of what Abraham perceived. This has implications on our evangelism. We never assume God's not at work. We never assume the kingdom isn't germinating something. In our town, in our country, and in the world. Never assume that... In spite of appearances, it's a godless place. Always believe and understand what Jesus taught us in Mark 4, 26-29. And He said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, once he puts in a sickle because the harvest has come. This little agricultural example Jesus gives us is about what the kingdom of God is like. Seed scattered on the ground and it produces fruit. We don't know how it does it in the ground. It just does it. And Jesus said, that's what the kingdom is like. My word does supernatural things. And in spite of appearances, don't assume I'm not at work. Meaning, for Roman Floyd County, Three Rivers Church, get busy. Get busy. Stop looking for something to satisfy some need that the church can never satisfy. Sow the seed of the gospel. Be an evangelist. Spread the good news of God and His kingdom. And assume rather that God is making it increase. 
and invite people to Jesus and just test him and see, just see if what he said is true. My hunch is we'd be surprised. We perhaps say like Abraham, there's no fear of God in this place. Forget Roman Floyd County. It's awful. By the way, can I throw some numbers on you? This is crazy. Right? In the 80 some odd Southern Baptist churches, Roman Floyd County. All right? There's some 4,000 people. Right? 140 churches in Roman Floyd County. 83 Southern Baptist churches. We're one of them. I got to know you're Southern Baptist. Yes, we are. Right, uh, just a little over four thousand people in those churches. You know how many new additions to Southern Baptist churches we had last year? Six hundred and thirty-three. That's not even one per. If each of us made a disciple last year, there'd be eight thousand. Six hundred thirty-three. That's less. That's point. I haven't done the math. Somebody can do your calculator. That's bad. If 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 this were a sales job, we'd get fired. What'd you do last year? I made point one. You see what I'm saying? Could could it be we're just not preaching the gospel? Or is the gospel impotent? I don't know. You're going to have to decide that for yourself. Don't assume God's not at work. God's at work. The question is, are we joining Him in the labor? Sixth. I gotta say this. I wrote it and I gotta say it because it's just burning in my, my bones. We gotta stop saying dumb things like we kick God out of blank, fill in the blank. That bothers me on two fronts. Number one, like you can kick God out of something. I mean, read Genesis 20 again and think, can you kick him out of something? Abraham thought he's doing his thing. God's like, come on, man. You don't kick God out of anything. He's the sovereign creator. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. He's holding the universe together by His Word. He's speaking, stay together. And it's going, okay. I will. Atoms don't explode because Jesus says, stay together. Okay. You, you don't, we don't kick God out of nothing. Don't assume God is absent. He's absent. He's present. The question is, are we? Because the gospel comes through the preached gospel message. The gospel fruit comes from the preached gospel message from the mouths of Christians preaching it. In work, co-labor with the Holy Spirit making it effective. So if we're not seeing gospel fruit, it's not because God's not present. It could be we're absent. Just drop that one there. Sorry. Six, sin affects everybody, not just the sinner. All of Abimelech's household was affected by Abraham's sin. I can never justify my sin. There's never an excuse for it. Never. Sin often masquerades in my heart. And I'm just preaching from my soul as self-justification. I'm doing this because of, and then I bring up whatever causes me to do it. That's how sin likes to masquerade. It likes to justify itself. Remember that sin's effects ripple way beyond ourselves and it affects everyone else. When I really begin to believe that, I'll begin to put a rein on my folly. Number seven, God's able to redeem even our lousier moments. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful God can redeem my lousier moments. God's ability to overcome our sin and use it for good is never an excuse to sin. I don't, I don't want you to think that, oh, Jolly said God overcomes our sin, so let me just go sin. No, 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 no. God doesn't excuse his sin. Jesus paid for it. God overcame it. 
But it's never an excuse. Just do know this, that even at our very worst, God's working for our good and His glory. Finally, worship God for His gracious passes. And for His active good fatherly discipline. Both. Maybe in this room this morning, you know He's given you a pass. You know what you did. And He was good to you anyway. They ought to be some dancing going on. I'm not fully charismatic, but I'm charismatic enough to go somehow dance. Because you know what you did, and He's loving you anyway. And He's not giving you the fruit off of that cancer. And maybe He's got you under the gun a little bit. Maybe He's squeezing you hard a little bit. And laying the sin bare. Worshiping for that too, because that's life-giving. And it's an opportunity to join the Spirit putting a sword in it. So that we can live. Both of those deserve full praise. So would you do that this morning? Let's pray together and worship. Father, we pray that you help us. Um, we need your help. I need your help. Um, I'm chief sinner in the room. And I'm broke hard. In a thousand different ways. And I thank you for the good grace of Jesus and the gospel. That's putting me back together. But, uh, but also um, not counting my sin against me. Well, I need that hard. Lord, I pray that you would do that work of realization in this room. Among your people. God, I pray that you would um, bring worship from the lips of your people this morning. We, we believe that worship is the life we live. Not just the song we sing. But right now we're gathered to receive instruction to bring you praise. So right now it's appropriate for us to sing. So we pray you'd pull that out of your people. Somehow. So we pray you'd do that. I pray that you'd work... Um, convincingly in our hearts to convince us that what you say is true and to move us to appropriate action. Pray you do that this morning. Um, pray where there's no knowledge of sin, you would bring it. Pray where there's no salvation, you would bring it. And pray that in all of these things, Jesus, you would be exalted, lifted up, and we would, we would be further helped along in our trust in you to go a little further into Christ and grow up into him this morning.